Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Castillon, 1453, and the last years of the Hundred Years' War. This is part four of four. If you haven't yet listened to the first three parts, now might be a good time to listen to those. I would also recommend previous episodes on other battles of the Hundred Years' War, the battles of Slaus, and then Cressy, Poitiers, and Agincourt, to give more background. But if you've listened to those already, or want to continue anyway, then let's begin. In the previous episode, I described how by 1436, the Hundred Years' War was turning in favour of the French, with the key turning points, the Siege of Orleans, and the French victory at the Battle of Patay soon afterwards. The Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, who had earlier at times supported the English, in 1435 signed the Treaty of Arras with the French King Charles VII. Philip tried to take advantage of English weakness in 1435 by attacking the English coastal stronghold of Calais. The intention was to extend Burgundian authority, but the plan was ill-conceived and backfired badly. The Flemish had for centuries enjoyed a good trading relationship with the English, but this was now disrupted by Philip placing a ban on English imports into his dominions. Some individuals in Flanders saw an advantage in seizing Calais, but others preferred to avoid any conflict which would disrupt trade further across the Channel. The Flemish troops who were sent to Calais were unmotivated, and the attack on Calais was easily rebuffed. Philip of Burgundy's defection had raised such feeling against him that his ambassadors were arrested and the English mob pillaged the houses of Flemish merchants. The Duke of Gloucester, who now felt his policy of distrust towards Burgundy, vindicated, and now without the restraining hand of his dead brother, helped organise English raids into Flanders. The Flemish, in response, rose in revolt against Philip. Diplomatic efforts were made to repair Anglo-Burgundian relations by the moderates on each side, and by September 1439, a new commercial treaty had been signed which normalised Anglo-Flemish trade. But the damage had been done, and the French had been the only beneficiaries. In spite of the Treaty of Arras, the French played a diplomatic game of appearing friendly, while at the same time busily working away to undermine Philip's rights and authority within his dominions. 
In late 1435, for example, Philip wrote to complain that certain towns, which had ceded to him according to the treaty, were still in French hands. Franco-Burgundian relations improved a little in times when the French needed to keep Philip on side against the English, but hindsight shows that French attitude remained fundamentally hostile. Large numbers of French soldiers, officially unemployed after the Treaty of Arras, now acted as armed bands who pillaged Burgundian territory. Known as les Écochères, they were famous for stripping their victims of everything, often to their very clothes. The French authorities claimed to have no power over these brigands, and made little effort to deter them. This didn't fool the local population who referred to them as les Jeunes du Roi, or the King's People. Nor were their activities limited to the Duchy of Burgundy, as in 1439 a number of them were arrested in the county of Hainaut. Early in 1441, Philip the Good sent his wife, Isabella, to the French royal court to present a series of complaints to King Charles VII, accompanied by the prisoners from Hainaut. But not a single one of her requests was granted, and she returned frustrated to report her failure to Philip. From this moment on, the French hostility towards Burgundy was now abundantly clear. There was a group of French councillors who advocated open warfare with Burgundy, but the king himself preferred, as described by Richard Vaughan, quote, a policy of consistent and determined hostility, of provocation, alliances, litigation and even sedition against Philip, but always stopping short of actual warfare, end quote. From 1434 to 1444, French aggression became ever more open. According to Vaughan, the whole course of French foreign policy in 1444 seemed to threaten Burgundy. Attacks on the city of Metz and the Swiss made in that year were clear incursions by the French into the Burgundian sphere of interest. They were only made possible by an Anglo-French truce which had been signed at Tours on the 28th of May 1444. In the years immediately after the Treaty of Arras of 1435, the French had made significant gains against the English in Normandy, capturing a string of towns along the coast. Anne Curry writes in her book, The Hundred Years' War, that it would be wrong to simply write off the English at this point, as though the final expulsion of 1449 to 1453 followed in direct line from the defeats of 1429 of the Siege of Orleans. The English continued to show a strong commitment to Normandy, revealed by large and frequent reinforcements being sent across the Channel, along with money to help finance the garrisons of the Duchy. The loss of Paris was a major blow to Henry VI's pretensions to the Crown of France, but the English retained control of many towns to the immediate west of Paris, and in early 1440s recovered some towns in the north, such as Arfleur. After so many years of conflict, the English, however, were running increasingly short of funds, and without any significant gains or victories, were finding the tax burden increasingly difficult to justify. From 1439, the French and English tried repeatedly to find a long-lasting peace settlement, but talks floundered, mainly on England's refusal to renounce Henry's claim to the throne. Fighting continued without any resolution either way until 1444, from when a shift in the English position can be detected. Not only were they prepared for a truce, but were now also thinking of surrendering their claim to the throne for little more than Normandy and Gascony in full sovereignty. 
with all the fighting in the north of France, it can be forgotten that the English had controlled Gascony in southwest France in relative peace for nearly 300 years since the time of King Henry II of England's marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine. For the first time in many years, Gascony was now under threat of attack from the French, which is one possible reason for the English change of heart. Another reason was a failed expedition in 1443 by John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, which ended in confusion and in the alienation of Brittany, which Beaufort had decided to attack. Perhaps the biggest reason for the change in English strategy, though, was the growing influence and government of King Henry VI. By 1444, Henry VI of England was already 22 years of age, and so for several years had been king in his own right. But he was a weak ruler who gave no clear direction on a strategy for France either way, and allowed himself to be dominated by powerful courtiers. In sharp contrast to his father, Henry V, He was shy and averse to bloodshed, and had practically no interest in France. He never offered a strong need in the defence of his French crown or lands. He didn't even take the kind of firm line in negotiations that Richard II had done in his reign. The main terms of the Treaty of Tours of 1444 between England and France was the marriage of Charles VII, 15-year-old niece, Margaret of Anjou, to Henry VI, and the agreement of a 20-month truce between the two kingdoms. The treaty was seen as a major failure for England, as the bride secured for Henry VI was a poor match, being related to King Charles VII only distantly, and through marriage rather than by blood. Also, not only did the marriage come without a dowry, but Henry had agreed to pay for the wedding himself, a considerable expense which the English could ill afford at this moment of time. Charles's main focus of diplomacy at this point was the acquisition of the county of Maine, south of Normandy and west of Paris. Under pressure from Charles VII and under the influence of his more strong-willed wife, Henry agreed to surrender Maine. Knowing that the move was unpopular and would be opposed by the Dukes of Gloucester and York, at first he kept the agreement secret. By the time the agreement became public, it was impossible for the English to back out with honour. Charles VII had achieved the taking of Maine without ever having to fight for it by exploiting the weakness of Henry. This was a difficult period in English politics, in which the problems of France loomed large. The most obvious indication of this was the arrest of Henry's uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, then heir to the English throne in February 1447. Charged with reason, Gloucester died three days later, some suspect of poison, but more probably of a stroke. The Duke had consistently urged a hard line against Charles VII, the opposite of Henry VI, who appeared to be willing to negotiate a peace at any price. Meanwhile, in France, French violations of the truce were daily more blatant, as Charles VII, as he had done in Burgundy, kept trying to push the boundaries of what he could get away with without provoking outright war. English ships were attacked, villages raided, and in English-held towns, rebellions encouraged. On the 24th of March, 1449, it was the English who made a breach of the truce. An Aragonese captain seized the town of Fougere in the marches of Brittany, close to the Norman border. On first appearance, this was just the independent action of a foreign mercenary. The English denied all knowledge of the attack, but the French suspected that the expedition had been planned in London, and they were right. It was just the excuse Charles VII was waiting for to invade Normandy. 
In August he sent his armies into Duchy, as he had been preparing to do ever since the Treaty of Tours. As a result of financial constraints and a lack of political leadership, the English garrisons were too weak to resist, and reinforcements were slow in being dispatched. Local inhabitants offered little support to the English, often betraying their towns to the French, and what remained of the English Kingdom of France collapsed like a house of cards. The towns of Pont-l'Evêque and Lissot immediately fell to the French. Then, in October, Rouen was captured, followed by Arfleur in December, and Enfleur and Frenois in January 1450. In response, the English gathered an army of around 3,000 men who were dispatched to Cherbourg. Landing on the 15th of March, 1450, the army was reinforced with a further 2,000 men in late March. They marched south, meeting a French army of similar size near the village of Formigny near Bayeux on the 15th of April, 1450. The first three hours of the so-called Battle of Formigny were inconclusive, but the arrival of a contingent of 1,200 Bretons, led by Arthur of Richemont, turned the battle decisively in favour of the French. The English army was destroyed, with 3,500 killed and 900 taken prisoner, while French and Breton casualties were no more than a 1,000 dead and wounded. With no other significant English forces in Normandy, the whole duchy fell to the French within the year. With the exception of the town of Calais, the English were now left with just Gascony in the southwest corner of France. Charles VII for France was already making small gains in this province from 1449, but from autumn of 1450, following his success in Normandy, he was able to commit his full attention and resources into this new campaign. At least initially, there was a real resistance. Gascony had been under English sovereignty since the 12th century, and most locals had no wish to change. But in the absence of a sizeable English army, garrisons began to fall. The following year, on the 30th of June, 1451, the region's capital, Bordeaux, was captured. Over the next year, the English made serious efforts to reinforce Calais, their last surviving possession on the continent. By the summer of 1452, there were plans to send an army to Normandy, but the expedition instead was diverted to Bordeaux in Gascony. Many of the leading citizens of Bordeaux already deeply resented the French authorities that now ruled their city, undermining their traditional autonomy and demanding higher taxes. A plot was therefore hatched to bring back their previous rulers. The English noble, John Talbot, by now in his late 60s, was tasked with the recapture of the province. In a long and distinguished military career, he had already gained much respect from all sides, and there was real hope that at least Gascony could be salvaged from the wreckage of what had once been the English Kingdom of France. The English government continued to have great trouble funding their military campaigns and had to resort to enforced loans, which were fiercely resisted. Therefore, although they had wanted to raise an army of 5,000 men, only 3,000 appear to have set out with Talbot in September 1452. Favourable winds, however, enabled the fleet to quickly reach its destination, and Talbot landed in Gascony on the 17th of October 1452. According to tradition, the people of this area rose in support of Talbot. Several skirmishes were fought and some castles were taken. Even before he reached Bordeaux, several Gascon lords offered him their support. 
the leader of the French garrison of the city was determined to fight, but instead was seized in his bed by locals in what appeared to be a carefully coordinated coup, and the city gates were opened to the English on the 23rd of October. By the end of the year, most places had been retaken, with the exception of the great castle of Fronsac, which fell after a brief siege in early 1453. Charles VII is said to have received news of the events at Gascony on All Saints' Day at the start of November 1452. He reacted furiously and at first promised to punish the people severely. He ordered reinforcements to those places the French still held and ordered that any suburbs that made them vulnerable should be burned to the ground. On the diplomatic front, he agreed a military alliance with Count Gaston IV of Foire, whose territory in the Pyrenees bordered Gascony to the southeast. This led to the useful numerical advantage over the Anglo-Gascon forces in and around Bordeaux. By the late spring of 1453, a considerable force of French troops were on their way to Bordeaux, led by the same Jean de Clermont, who had led his forces to victory at Formigny. With little apparent difficulty, they quickly retook several small towns and castles. Having established contact with the forces of Talbot, de Clermont offered a formal challenge to battle. The armies of de Clermont and Foire were already close to each other and so agreed to join up. When Talbot learned that his opponents had united, he hesitated and demanded further conditions before agreeing to meet. This turned out to be a delaying tactic. Talbot, not wanting to take head-on a numerically larger army, decided to retreat to Bordeaux. The French army advanced and continued to make further gains. On the 13th of July, 1453, they arrived at the castle of Castillon on the banks of the river Dordogne. The nearby town, today known as Castillon-la-Bataille, lies 50 kilometres or 30 miles east of Bordeaux. According to David Nicole in his book, The Ford of English France, 1449-1453, to although the French army were not large, they were well equipped. The individual put in charge of the siege was Jean Bureau, son of merchants from Paris. He is described as a man of small stature, but of purpose and daring, particularly skilled and experienced in the use of artillery. As for the number of French troops, estimates vary a great deal, but included 6,000 to 10,000 men-at-arms, archers and others, plus 700 dedicated to the construction of fieldworks under the command of John Bureau. Torbert set out to relieve the garrison at Castillon, leaving Bordeaux in the early hours of the 16th of July. His army comprised some 800 to 1,000 men-at-arms and mounted archers, plus perhaps some 2,000 Gascon troops under their own lords, and 4,000 to 6,000 English infantry. They stopped briefly at the strongly fortified town of Libon, but Talbot only allowed his men a brief rest before resuming their march, reportedly setting out again at midnight. Winding their way through the hills north of the Dordogne, they assembled in the woods above the priory of Saint-Florent, just outside Castillon, without the French becoming aware of their presence. Shortly after the sun rose, the Anglo-Gascons emerged from the forest and captured the priory, taking the French defenders by surprise. There they found plentiful stores of food and drink with which to refresh themselves. The question now was whether Talbot would immediately follow up his advantage or let the tired troops rest. At this point, the messengers arrived from Castillon, declaring that there was a cloud of dust over the French camp, caused by the French hurriedly retreating. In response, Talbot gave orders for an immediate attack. 
In fact, the dust had been completely misinterpreted. It was not caused by the French retreating, but they are preparing for battle. Torbert urged his men to hurry, leading his mounted troops along the banks of the Dordogne, but leaving his infantry to follow as best they could. David Nicole dismisses the idea that this was a disorganised rush, but rather that the Anglo-Gascons were in proper array with a vanguard under Torbert, followed by other mounted troops to protect the slower-moving infantry. On arriving at the French position, Torbert was taken aback to find the French standing firm and well prepared. According to a French chronicler, Torbert's second-in-command, Thomas Everingham, at this point advised waiting for the infantry to catch up before attacking, believing that with patience the French could be starved into submission, as the local people, who were pro-English, would not supply them with food. Torbert's decision to dismiss this advice has been criticised ever since as impetuous, or putting his pride before good judgment. Nicole argues instead that there must have been good reason for the decision. Perhaps he wanted to keep up the momentum of his initiative, or saw the French placing their cumbersome guns in new positions to face an attack from an unexpected direction. The resulting Battle of Castillon on the 17th of July, 1453, was one of the first in history where a new technology, the cannon, would play an important role. The 300 French guns of various sizes were used to great effect against the Anglo-Gascons as they advanced. Torbert's reinforcements appeared piecemeal and were ordered to attack the right flank of the French position. When informed that only the leading elements of his force had arrived, Torbert told them to attack as and when they arrived. Although the French were protected behind field fortifications, they quickly began to tire, and the arrival of the Anglo-Gascon infantry seems to have revived the spirits of Torbert's own men. A fierce battle raged for over an hour until, as in Formigny, it was a Breton cavalry charge that turned the tide. The sources are not clear on why it took so long for the Bretons to attack. Were they perhaps deliberately held back for maximum impact? In any case, Torbert was caught by surprise, probably because of the amount of smoke and noise caused by the primitive guns. The French, seeing their enemy falter and encouraged by the Breton assault, launched a ferocious counter-attack. The Anglo-Gascons panicked and started to try and flee. John Torbert tried to rally his troops, but his horse fell and he became trapped underneath. There are various accounts of his death, but the most accepted is that he was struck on the head with an axe by a French soldier. The morale of the Anglo-Gascons collapsed entirely, and hundreds, probably thousands, were cut down as they tried to flee. Within a few months of this decisive battle, all towns and castles in Gascony fell to the army of Charles VII. Many French leaders wanted Bordeaux to suffer for inviting the French back. But Charles disagreed and decided that mercy would be a more effective way of integrating these long-separated areas into a unified French kingdom. Only a lack of cooperation from the Duke of Burgundy prevented Charles VII from launching an attack on the town of Calais, which would survive in English hands until 1558. With hindsight, we can see that the Battle of Castillon marks a watershed moment in the history of Europe. Although no one knew it at the time, the English would not launch another major assault on France until 1475, and never again successfully conquer French territory. These were troubled times politically in England, which is why the offensive against France was not maintained. In August 1453, possibly on hearing of the news from Castillon, Henry VI succumbed to mental illness, not dissimilar to that of his grandfather, Charles VI of France. 
Over the next several years, he was periodically incapable of ruling, leading to a struggle for power among the nobles of England, which led on to the War of the Roses, an English civil war that lasted until 1487. The most enduring legacy of the Hundred Years' War was centuries after of rivalry and hatred between the English and French peoples. The French never forgot the devastation of their homes, farms and countryside, not to mention the loss of life of a conflict which must have seemed at times never-ending. The English had spent a fortune on the conflict over the years and lost many lives themselves, and all ultimately for nothing. In later centuries, in some ways, they were better off without the burden of French lands to fight for, without the entanglement in continental politics and warfare that that involved. For France, their king, Charles VII, had achieved the defeat of the English, not by a great battle, he was not that kind of leader, but through years of careful diplomacy. The key to success in the Middle Ages was as much about persuading others to follow you as it was military prowess, although the two were often linked. If Charles had acted too slowly and timidly, it didn't matter in the end. His final victory came thanks to sheer persistence and perhaps some good luck. His successors would build on that victory, gain mastery over the whole of geographical France, and many decades later become the most powerful orders of Europe. As always, it'd be great to hear from you. You can find the podcast on Facebook or on Twitter at HistoryEuropeKB, also on Patreon.com and also on the blog www.historyeurope.net Thank you very much for listening to History of Europe Key Battles. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.